And with that as our prayer, let us turn to God's word, which is Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56 is our sermon text this evening. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear God's word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on, on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he, cha he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this evening you get a two-for-one deal. We have two miraculous stories combined into one passage. You see, Jesus is on the way to heal a young lady, but as he journeys to her, he heals another woman along the way. And then finally, at the end of the passage, he heals the girl that he set out to heal. And as we look at this passage, I want us to, to take note of two particular things, and not in any particular order, but just to note these two things as we move through the passage. First, that Jesus does not become unclean when he encounters those who are unclean, but rather he makes those who are unclean clean. And second, that God providentially uses the trials 
of these peoples and of their lives to strengthen their faith. He uses the trials in these people's lives to strengthen their faith. Now, you should remember from the last passage, last Lord's Day evening, we looked at the passage directly before this one. And from that passage, Jesus cast out the demons from the demoniac man. And he cast them into the herd of pigs. But when he did this, the people of that area, the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave. And so he and his disciples got back into the boat and he sailed to the other side of the sea where he is now here in our passage in Capernaum. And what we're going to see really is a stark contrast being made between the Gerasenes and the people of Capernaum. The Gerasenes had asked Jesus to leave. They didn't want him to stay around. But in verse 40, we see that when he arrives in Capernaum, the crowd welcomes him. In fact, the contrast is even more stark when we look at the man Jairus who implored Jesus to come to his house. Now, just a little bit about Jairus. Uh, He was a ruler of the synagogue. He therefore would have been an elder there at Capernaum. And as a ruler of the synagogue, he would have selected every Sabbath day those who would read and preach the scriptures and who would pray during the local synagogue service. And so he would have been a man of great prestige and reputation. Yet here he was, in our passage, falling prostrate before Jesus Because of his great need. His 12 year old daughter was ill and dying. And he needed Jesus to heal her. Now Jairus had most likely seen Jesus many times. Jesus made a habit of going into the synagogues each Sabbath. And frequently taught at the the synagogues. And so Jesus... Uh, had, had, had been there in Capernaum, had taught at this synagogue before. He also had spent quite a bit of time healing the sick and casting out demons in Capernaum. We learned this earlier in the book of Luke. And so Jairus would have at least known of Jesus if he had not already come into contact with him personally. But as a ruler of the synagogue, it's very likely that Jairus was not really very fond of Jesus, at least not up to this point. You see, Jesus had been upsetting the religious and social norms of his day, and the leaders of Israel, by and large, did not appreciate Jesus nor his message. But here was Jairus, local ruler of the synagogue, on his knees before Jesus, Because he was desperate. And it's amazing how quick your disposition towards something or towards someone can change when something personal happens in your life. Jairus may have hated Jesus and his ministry, but when Jesus seemed to be the only one who could heal his daughter, he had a change of heart. 
when issues begin to relate to us personally, when trials come, when difficulties happen, it can reveal our true heart's desires and intents and motives. Sometimes they reveal the person's hard heart. They prove false professors to be just that, false. You see, Jesus taught that many receive the word with joy, but in time of testing they fall away, showing themselves to be false. With Jairus, the exact opposite would take place. He was likely against Jesus from the beginning, but when a trial came, he was drawn to Jesus, even to the point of falling down before him in this submissive position. And Jesus would use this trial to bring him to faith, to true faith in Christ. Trials, you see, can be a good thing in unbelievers' lives. Sometimes it takes... The Lord will, will, will take us to the lowest point for us to wake up and to see reality, to see for truth for what it is. And so if an unbeliever is going through a tough time, I would encourage you, do not merely pray for them to be relieved of their trial. You can pray for that, but pray also that the Lord will use it to draw them to himself. Because sometimes those are the only events that help them to see that Jesus is their only hope in life. R. Kent Hughes says it this way, Despair is commonly the prelude to grace. It's very true, and I think true of Jairus in our passage. Now, as Jesus goes off to heal Jairus' daughter, the narrative then shifts to discuss the story of another healing along the way. Sort of a healing story within a healing story. And so we find another person who turns to Jesus in their disparity. The text says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Okay, so this woman was just as desperate as Jairus was, but for different reasons. Now, it's interesting, really, to note that this woman had been hemorrhaging for as many years as Jairus' daughter had been alive. For 12 years. Like a lifetime. She, she had had this problem with the flow of blood for what was the lifetime of this little girl. Now, she may have not been immediately dying from her continual discharge of blood, but it was certainly disrupting her life. And could possibly, maybe one day, bring about her death. You see, the constant loss of blood would have made her constantly feel weak and unhealthy. She had gone to many doctors, spending all of her money but to no avail because none of them could heal her. But even more than all of this, her condition had made her an outcast. 
The Old Testament law stated that a woman with a discharge of blood was considered unclean. Leviticus 15 Verses 19 and following states that when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, then she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And so you can see here how serious this was for a woman during the seven days of her menstruation. But this woman had this problem for 12 years, like a whole lifetime, compared to the other girl in the passage. For 12 years, this woman had been unclean. And so she could not go near the temple. To worship the true and living God. She could worship him, but she could not draw near to him where he dwelled. At the temple. For 12 years she could not touch anyone else, lest they too become unclean. If she had a husband... He had probably divorced her by now because of this very problem. He couldn't touch her. She was probably alone, suffering, and every bit as desperate as Jairus, just for different reasons. And as we read on, we discover that this woman touched the fringe of Jesus or the hem of Jesus' garment. And immediately she was healed. But Jesus had perceived that power had gone out from him. And so he responded, who was it that touched me? You see, what this woman had done was in secret. She wanted to remain anonymous. She, did, she, she shouldn't have even been near anyone else. She shouldn't have been near all the people that was around her at the time. Because she was unclean. And if she had touched anyone in the crowd, then they too would have been unclean. She did not want to ask Jesus out loud to heal her, for then everyone would know that she was unclean. And so she sneakily crept up to Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, and she was healed. Now, Jesus was not content to let this healing remain a secret, and so he asked who touched him. Now, why did he ask? Well, Jesus may have known who touched him by virtue, well, he did know who touched him by virtue of his divine nature, but maybe not have known by virtue of his human nature. And so maybe he was asking this question with respect to his human nature. That's one explanation. However, I'm of the opinion that Jesus did not ask this particular question because he did not know who touched him, not even with respect to his human nature. I believe that Jesus knew but asked this question for the sake of the crowd and for the sake of the woman. For the sake of the crowd so that God could be glorified by the healing 
And for the sake of the woman, since it was necessary for her to publicly profess her faith. Remember that this woman wanted to remain anonymous because of her condition. And now she wanted to escape without anyone noticing. Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on this passage, says, Some people would prefer to keep salvation a secret. They are willing to reach out for Jesus in their own private way, as long as no one else knows about it. They want to be healed by a secret touch, but they don't want to make a stand for Jesus. The truest confession of our faith is not a private moment alone with Jesus, but a public witness to his grace, even if we give it as this woman did with fear and trembling. End quote. You see, the Lord calls us to publicly profess our faith before men. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, it's because of passages like these that I've just read, uh, the very reason why we have new believers and new members, as well as our children, publicly profess faith when they believe on the gospel. Just as Jesus did with this woman, so he asks us to publicly profess our faith. Because it strengthens the faith of others, and it glorifies God. And as Jesus sends her away, he affirms to her and to all who were watching that it was her faith that healed her. It was not some type of magical thing to touch Jesus' garment and then be healed. No, Jesus saves and only saves through the instrumentation of faith. Her healing was, was a portrait, a picture of her coming to saving faith and being healed from her sins. That's what it symbolized. And Christ heals us from our sins. He saves us from our sins through the instrumentality of faith. And so he tells her then to go in peace, the very peace that comes from God. In essence, he was telling her that because of her faith, she can go away with the smile of God upon her. Now don't forget that the healing of the hemorrhaging woman is just the story within the story. There's still a larger story to get back to. But this smaller story occurred in the midst of the larger story for a reason. You see, in God's providence, God's providence is his continual governing of the world. God is is sovereign. He rules the world. And in his sovereignty, in his providential ruling of the world, the healing of the hemorrhaging woman occurred, probably for many reasons, but at least for one reason, which was to strengthen the faith of Jairus, who was present with them at the time. You see, as all of this takes place, Jairus was watching. He was seeing how Jesus responded to this woman and how she responded to him. 
Now, as all of it happened, Jairus may have initially been feeling a little anxious. He may have been a little beside himself, thinking, Jesus, hurry up. Who cares who touched you? My daughter's dying. We don't have time for this. Please, let's go. But then the bad news comes in the story. Verse 49 tells us that while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But here's where the two stories really intersect. Jairus came to Jesus in faith, but his faith was weak and needed to grow. He believed that Jesus could heal his daughter, but his faith did not carry him all the way to belief that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. When Jesus tells Jairus, do not fear, only believe, Jairus should have immediately thought of the faith of the woman who had just come to Jesus and been healed. God had arranged these two encounters for the purpose of strengthening his people, especially that of Jairus. And God does this for us today as well. He does this for his church. In fact, chapter 5, section 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says that after a most special manner, God's providence taketh care of his church. And disposeth all things to the good thereof. This means that even in our trials, even in our sufferings, even in the difficult things, all that is occurring around us, God is in control of, and He is using it for our good and the greater good of His own glory. You see, God knows our troubles. Just as he knew the troubles of the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus, he knows that we suffer physically, emotionally, financially, and in many other ways. And he wants to grow us in our faith through those struggles. Not that he doesn't care about the struggle itself that we're going through. He does. And he can sympathize with us because Christ himself took on our nature and knows of those struggles and weaknesses, though he knew them, of course, without sin. But God knows of our struggles and through Christ sympathizes with us. But God also uses such things to grow us in our faith and in our holiness. Not that God wants you to be miserable in those struggles, but he knows that true happiness True peace, true joy comes from being holy through our union with Christ. You see, God does not always remove our struggles immediately. He does not always remove our struggles in this life at all. Sometimes they remain with us until 
our dying day. Sometimes it might be what brings about our death. There's an example of this in Scripture. Paul himself had a thorn in his side that he asked the Lord on three occasions to remove. But the only response that Paul received from the Lord was that my grace is sufficient for you. That suffering of the thorn, whatever it may have been, was used in Paul's life to cause him to depend more and more Upon God's grace. And so our struggles are meant to strengthen our faith. We will not all be like the hemorrhaging woman or Jairus' daughter. Who found healing. Who was raised from the dead. Even. You see sometimes our sickness or our circumstances bring life as we know it here on earth. To an end. But that is Why Jesus performs the second miracle is to deal with that very issue. The issue of death itself. It's why I believe Jesus delayed in healing Jairus' daughter. He wanted to display his power over death. He says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, many of the people there did not understand what he was saying. They did not understand the statement. In fact, some laughed at Jesus because they knew that the girl was dead. But it was meant to show Jesus' power over death. William Hendrickson puts it this way. He says that the meaning is that death will not have the final say. Not death, but life is going to triumph in the end. Also, just as natural sleep is followed by awakening, so this child is going to become awake, that is, is going to live again. End quote. Now, if you understand the Old Testament background for this text, then it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus is teaching here in this passage, or that the passage itself is teaching, that Jesus conquers death, not death, Jesus. You see, to a first century Jew who still lived under the old covenant, the clean and unclean laws would have stood out most clearly in this passage. You see, first, the the, the woman with the continual flow of blood was unclean. And now this little girl has died, and anyone who touches a dead carcass becomes unclean. But notice in both cases that Jesus, when he comes into contact with those who are unclean, it is not he who becomes unclean with them, but they who become clean. The woman who touches Jesus was healed, and she became instantly clean. And with the little girl who died, notice that the text makes special notice that he touches her. Jesus didn't have to touch her in order to heal her. But it says he took her by the hand. And instantly, she went from dead to alive. From unclean to clean. Now, what one 
would expect in these situations that Jesus would become unclean by touching that which is unclean, but rather they became clean. And so this passage is attempting to teach that Jesus has the power to make you clean. Even more that Jesus has the power to save you from sin and from death. Remember that the purpose of the clean and unclean laws was meant to teach Israel that the effects of sin are death. To be unclean, as we've discussed in our series in Leviticus, to be unclean was to be less than whole and thus associated with death. But to be clean was to be whole and thus it was associated with life. And so Jesus made these women whole. But we must acknowledge that as wonderful as these healings were, both of them, both of these women would be met with the trial of death again in their lives. Just as it will come for you and for me, should our Lord tarry. But this miracle shows that Jesus has power over death. The author of Hebrews in the second chapter says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus not only has power over death, but he conquered it. Death could not hold him in the grave, for he was raised up on the third day. Jesus not only had power to save these women from physical death, but he had the power to save them from spiritual death as well, because the spiritual death that they deserve, the spiritual death that we all deserve, was laid upon him at the cross. Jesus died for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon him for the sake of those who believe in him. And thus they are saved from the second death. They are saved from eternal condemnation. Those who have faith in Christ are saved from the second death. And that is what this text is is teaching us and calling us to do, to place our faith in Christ. Both Jairus and the woman with the flow of blood had faith. Christ saves by grace through faith. And so the Lord providentially performed a miracle in the midst of Jairus' struggle, so as to improve his faith. You see, this passage calls us to faith, but it also calls us to grow in our faith. Jairus needed to grow in faith, and so the Lord providentially performed this 
other miracle in order to strengthen his faith. The hemorrhaging woman also needed to grow in her faith as well. And this was seen in the manner that she was healed. The text notes that she touched the fringe or the hem. We could also even translate it the tassel. She touched the tassel of Jesus' garment. Now in the Old Testament law, specifically in Numbers chapter 15, in verse 37 and following, we learned that God had instructed the people of Israel to make tassels on the corners of their garments. Putting a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And then verse 39 says, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. You see, as she bowed before Jesus and touched the fringe or the tassels on his garment, it was an act of submission to the covenant lawmaker. Yahweh would be her God and she would be his daughter and uh, would follow after him, obeying his laws. But the symbolism of, of the garment here really is even more rich than that. <clears throat> Maybe you recall the story of Ruth and Boaz. From the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, when Ruth wished to be redeemed from her childless, widowed condition and to marry Boaz, she told him in chapter 3, verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, that word there for wings in that verse, it's in Hebrew, it's kanaf. Spread your wings. That word can also be translated... Literally, the corners of your garment. Spread the corners of your garment over me, for you are a redeemer. And what this symbolized in that day was the entering of a covenant between a man and a woman. Meredith Klein puts it this way. It is a ritual indicative of a man's bringing a woman under his protection. Now that word is used again a little later in the book of Ruth, to speak of the Lord's covenant with Israel, bringing her under his protection. In chapter 2, verse 12 of the book of Ruth, it says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, kanaf, there it is, under whose wings, under whose garment, He has covered you under whose garment you have come to take refuge. Let me point out one last verse relevant to what I'm saying. In Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8, Yahweh is speaking to his bride, Israel. And he says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment. There it is, kanaf. I spread my wings over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. You see, beloved, when you enter into the covenant of the Lord God by faith, you find refuge in the shadow of his wings. 
You're going to face trials and struggles in this life. But your refuge is in the covenant Lord. And that is what this woman's faith symbolized when she touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. He was her redeemer, just as Boaz was for Ruth, but even more, an even greater redeemer. For he redeemed her from her uncleanliness, and he too can redeem you from your uncleanness, the uncleanness of your sins. But you must repent and turn to Christ and touch him by faith. And when you do, you can put your fears away because by your faith you have become clean and overcome spiritual death for you have found refuge in the shadow of the Almighty's wings. To Him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the refuge you have provided us in Jesus Christ. He is our rock, our hard place, where we can seek refuge. May we look to him in faith, and may we fear nothing but you, O God, as we uh, come to a reverent fear of you and trusting in you, knowing that man can put us to death, but you and you alone have the power to cast us into hell. Let us flee from our own ways and our own desires and seek after you. And so we pray for your spirit to be at work in us that we might truly follow after Christ in faith. That we might grow in our faith just as both Jairus and the woman the discharge of blood and how they grew in their faith. Lord, may we publicly profess our faith before man and give you all the glory that you so deserve. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.